you know, for us, training is key, right? This product, you know, it's customer service. It's understanding, you know, like you said, the operations, being consistent in store design, look and feel, and making sure that people are going to operate a business as you would, which is probably one of the hardest, right? Even if they interview well, are they going to operate the business and care about their own business as much as you care about yours, or are they the right partners? Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks again for joining me. This episode is near and dear to my heart for many reasons. It's about mentoring and getting the most out of your team because service is probably the most important thing you can deliver as a competitive advantage. This episode is also about a fast-growing concept that has food, service, and ambiance. You're not going to want to miss this episode. It talks about pivots. It talks about the current pain points and challenges in this business that we've all dealt with and a fresh approach to growing a business. Stay tuned. Thanks also to the sponsors of this week's episode, Works, The Birthday Club, and The Restaurant Rockstars Academy. Now, on with the episode. You're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars Podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Hey, Rockstars. Let's talk restaurant marketing. I started and ran five restaurants, and I was obsessed with marketing. Not the traditional kind where you try this and you try that and you hope for the best. That's like dumping $100 bills out the window but nobody's coming in the door. I'm talking about marketing that's trackable, where you know exactly where the business is coming from, and most important, that it delivers far more than every penny you spend. So here's where my friend Dyson comes in. He's a restaurant person, just like you, owned his own concepts. Now he runs Fan Connect. He's got something called the Birthday Club that's proven to drive new and repeat business in your door because everybody has a birthday. He does it all for you, too. All the heavy lifting. All you have to do is focus on your guests and delivering true hospitality. Why not speak with Dyson yourself? He loves talking shop with operators, and there's no obligation. But I'm pretty sure he can boost your business and put more butts in your seats. If I still own restaurants, it's exactly what I'd do. Check it out at fanconnect.com slash birthdayrockstar. Restaurant owners and managers, listen, it's not too late to claim your employer retention credit, but you have to act soon. If you haven't heard of this, your business can receive money back from the IRS, money you've already paid in payroll taxes. Nothing you do today is more important. Now, this is free and clear cash that your business is owed by the government. The ERC program is available if your operation had 500 employees or less, you had to shut down or partially suspend your business, or you had at least a 20% decrease in business due to COVID-19 during any quarter of 2020 and the first three quarters of 2021. Now, your business can get up to $7,000 per employee per quarter for 21 and up to $5,000 per employee in 2020. Now, if you have just 10 employees today and meet the requirements, you can receive up to $260,000 back in a refundable tax credit that you don't have to pay back. Now, the faster you apply, the quicker you get the money, but you must do it soon. You can use the money for any purpose, payroll, cost of goods, business improvement, or other expenses. 
expenses. Again, you don't have to pay this money back. Now, Works is a company that will do everything for you to get the money that you're owed. Now, I'm speaking from experience with Works. My restaurant received big checks in all available quarters, and Works people and process made it easy. For a no-obligation consultation, click the link in the show notes to this episode and speak to them with no obligation. You pay nothing until they get you the cash. Act now. Welcome back. This is the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. With me today, Mr. Andrew Pudilov, and he is the founder and CEO of a really interesting concept called Rush Bowls. And it's a franchise, and we're going to cover a lot of ground talking about the brainchild for this and where it all began. So welcome to the show, Andrew. Really glad to have you here. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to get going. Well, you know, Restaurants start in a variety of ways, and you have a particularly interesting story. Why don't we talk about New York City and finance and 9-11, you know, such a tragedy that happened, such a life-altering moment for so many Americans, and, uh, you know, just the whole country was shaken. The whole world was shaken by this tragic event, and you were right in the thick of New York City finance. So tell us about your time in New York before 9-11, what happened the, in your experiences with 9-11 and then what forced you to move out of New York City and it literally shaped your life and what you're doing now? Sure. So, you know, certainly my career in finance really started early on. I was always, I started at Bear Stearns, uh, then grew to Morgan Stanley, Credit Lyonnais, and, a, and then uh, National Australia Bank, all really uh, for foremost, for most of the large portion, all fixed income derivative trading. So, just to most people don't know what that is, but that's I was a gambler for the bank, right? So I would take uh, funds and make calculated mathematical bets on certain items that would sit on the books for a long time. Uh, very mathematically oriented. I was a professional gambler, no different in many ways than uh, going to Vegas and uh, having someone really make uh, strategic bets, uh, except, you know, it's a little different. There's no real house here. You know, there's the houses. I'm making calculated uh, decisions on behalf of the bank, and I'm taking those positions on behalf of the bank. So it's not a broker. Uh, I did it for a long time. It's a very, very highly stressful job. Most people... Uh, are not in it for a long, long time. Uh, it's very rewarding, obviously, in many ways, but it's also incredibly stressful. And I, you know, I lived in Manhattan for 15 years, and then really, you know, I was working in Midtown. My wife uh, was uh, on maternity leave. She was in, and most people don't even realize this. In '93, uh, there was uh, a bombing on the World Trade Center. Uh, prior. And uh, she was in the tower really high up, I think, 80s or 90s in that first bombing. I remember that that event of for sure. So this is interesting that your wife was literally working in the towers and they say that everything shook no matter what level you were on. Like the, the magnitude of that explosion did not cripple the towers, but it certainly made everyone just take notice and say, what was that? And it was uh, the first indicator that we were vulnerable in some ways on our shores. So keep going. This is fascinating stuff. And what what's crazy about that is they they basically placed there was no communication in the building also at the time uh, of ninety three and we didn't we were friendly but we didn't really know each other uh, other than she lived in a building similar to me at the time but uh, 
it was pretty traumatic on a lot of levels then. And then going forward, um, it's her first day back from maternity. We're living in Manhattan. I have uh, a, a child, two children now, and one is literally an infant, infant, another is, you know, a year old, basically, you're in a She's in the 20s. And when I say 20s, 20th, around 20th Street in Manhattan, I'm in Midtown. And for people who are not aware of New York City, you know, downtown, it's just like it sounds. It's lower downtown. So you can visual. It's the clearest, beautiful day. And a plane crashes in. She literally is talking to her boss. And she sees the plane crash in. She's pretty high up. No and I'm kidding. in Midtown. Amazing. And it is havoc. And it's almost incomprehensible to understand for me personally, the devastation of that day. Um, I a lot of the conversations I had with people worked in that building. A good friend of mine actually got up to the top, which the experience from the '93 bombing is they locked the roof, so you couldn't even get to the top. Um, and he ended up jumping along with a lot of other people in finance, especially Cantor, was hard hit. Um, right. And, and it, it was traumatic for me, uh, I will tell you, um, in yes. lots of levels, because not even thereafter, in one of the buildings, uh, we would have to evacuate all the time thereafter. Um, when you're in trading, you generally don't evacuate or you'll sit as long as possible. Uh, and you didn't really know what was going on. Um, so it wasn't even just the tragedy. It was the aftermath of the tragedy also that was very impactful from if you were living in New York City, I don't know if people remember, but they were saying like uh, tape down your windows. So you have anthrax, you had anthrax on the subway and just a lot of these uh, mm -hmm. horrible, horrible, catastrophic things. And all along, I was always contemplating what I would do next. Um, I was good at what I did. Uh, and it, it, it afforded me a quite a nice lifestyle in many ways, but it wasn't satisfying at all. And what I personally missed in doing this job was that <laughs> I had no interaction with really a lot of, I had my friends, but customers and there's no interaction. I would mine yours very, you know, to the point, there were a lot of, not a lot of dilly dallying, and we had a you know a sales group, and they would take care of the sales to other institutions. It wasn't to people; it was institution to institution. Um, but there was no outlet on, on a social aspect of things uh, in that realm, and I, I missed that. And then I always contemplated and observed the New York City because I had little kids. Like, what are they going to eat? And at the time, and this is going back, unfortunately, a little bit, by about 20 years or so, the choices for food for little kids were, you know, a hot dog, uh, grilled cheese, pizza. There was no real thought of health food uh, in this arena. Especially and food that they would enjoy eating that was also good for them. Exactly. Yeah. You know, they mm -hmm. kind of kids were an afterthought. And that really afforded me like all right maybe there's something here so after long discussions and always wanting to live out west i picked boulder as a community that i felt had a university there 
had easy access to a lot of travel and something I can, you know, it has a great reputation to, you know, for people indoor, outdoor, especially outdoor activities and with a focus on health and wellness. And that was important, important to me. So I'm hearing that this sort of idea was in your head before 9-11 happened. Like you were thinking about checking out just because, okay, the money was great. It wasn't so gratifying in many ways. You were thinking of a lifestyle change. Um, You're probably talking this over with your wife and thinking, okay, what's our next move? Was this before you actually thought about starting Rush Bowls or you were thinking about just getting out of the city and just changing your life 360 degrees, doing something else, but you hadn't quite come up with what you were going to do next? You were just starting to say, hey, I think it's time we move out and do something. T- tell us about that. Yeah. I, and I, I think certainly um, before I even got married, um, I said, hey, I'm going to move to Boulder someday. Uh, I wanted to do this. I kind of always wanted to live there, even as a little kid. And I, I can't even tell you why. I traveled out west. I was in Boulder maybe once in my life, so prior. Um, in the environment that I was in, uh, in generally, and when you're taking large positions on behalf of the bank, banks, uh, your longevity and the stress level, people are not doing it into their 40s, really, uh, even into their 30s, if you can make it that long. Um, you're, you, so I always had that this was not fulfilling for me long term, but I also knew you're not going to, most people are not going to do it long time. They're either going to die of a heart attack, get into all the horrible stuff, or, you know, just quit at some point. Uh, Would generally you say speaking. that, interestingly, you build a track record, you build a reputation in your business. People know who you are and what you're capable of and what your achievements have been in the past. But would you say that it gets to a point where you're only as good as the last great decision you've made and then all of a sudden something goes sideways and now no one can see around corners, even though some people are very good at it? You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think in what I was doing, um, that was always the case, right? From day one, you're yeah. always as good as your last because, hey, you're revenue generation. If oh, you're not generating revenue and, mm-hmm. you know, I had to fire a lot of people that were good people right. that they right. weren't generating revenue. I wasn't as worried about that. My last year actually was probably my most successful year. There's a lot going on financially that I was able to take advantage of on behalf of the bank. For me, Personally, was not that sad. Um, and, and uh, you know, the h- higher highs were lower. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't know the best way to explain it. And listen, at the time, you're treated like a rock star. Like any restaurant you want to go to, any event you want to go to, there's a broker that's happy to take you anywhere you want because uh, they get commission on this stuff. And it's all disposable. You know, this course. So. I wasn't uh-huh. even into that. I didn't go out as much, you know, after a while, you know, you have to be sharp too. You, you know, you, you got to be mathematically yeah. very, very uh, with it. So I wanted, and I'm a, I'm a good builder. I like building things in terms of businesses and I wanted to be challenged in a different way and, and come at it from a different perspective and somewhat <laughs> Uh, ignorant to the business itself, but come of it from probably a more financially based perspective. So you're very strong analytically Mm -hmm. and what you've done has certainly helped you with what you're doing now, but did you go to business school or did you just, you know, get into the finance world without actually having an MBA or something of that nature? No, I, I, I have always been pretty analytical and 
mm-hmm. my undergraduate business school and a graduate business school. So, okay. uh, you know, I've been business focused um, pretty strongly, I would say, um, you know, and then that's, you know, that teaches this theory and then there's reality too, which is right. the life, the life lesson. Yeah. Yeah. We have a similar background. Um, I didn't really know much about the restaurant business when I started, but I had an MBA and I sort of applied business skills to running a business, not running or opening a restaurant. And, you know, I point that out quite a bit when I either consult or I speak for the industry, you know, around the country. It's like, don't run a restaurant, run a business. Those are two separate things. You know, your products aren't food and drink. It's really about delivering experiences. And, you know, that's lost on some people, but it opens their eyes when it's a paradigm shift. So I totally see where you're coming from this. Let's talk about when that concept, we we sort of touched on the fact that, you know, you had a young family, a growing family. We talked about Boulder being a place that you wanted to relocate in. And then all of a sudden, where did the Rush Bowls concept, was that your very first idea? Did it evolve from something else that you may have started and tried or that's the idea and you just started banging out a business plan? Like, tell us about the evolution of the concept and if that's where it started for you. Yeah. And a friend of mine had a smoothie business at the time Mm -hmm. and he was educating because I was like, all right, you know, I want to be near the university. At the time, I felt that college kids from my own experience were not getting healthy food at all. And I thought there was a niche there. And that was, I always felt that way, especially when I visited. And my friend had a smoothie business. So I I flew out, I checked it out. I spoke to him a bit about it. And he was like, well, why don't you try it there? And and we're good friends. And I'm like, I'm going to try it, but I want to do something different. And he's like, yeah, great, you know. And I right away launched into a bowl business. Now, um, I am a big, huge texture guy in my mouth. I wanted more of a meal focus. I didn't want to do a drink as readily. And I want to really stay with purity of product. So this was how we opened. Um, And I will tell you that a big part of business for us, which generally is not successful, was education. So we spent a lot of time in educating what a bowl was, getting people in mouths. And, you know, fortuitously, A, college kids are more adaptive to new products, in my experience. I totally agree with you. And it was a hit right away. Like, people liked having it as a meal. Now, keep in mind, this is 18-plus years ago, right? So, you know, it's... No one was doing anything like this, and it was almost unheard of, right? So we started doing that, and then it was really, hey, how do we get it in people's mouths? And then slowly but surely, once we got it in people's mouths, they would come, oh, I want this, want this, I want this. And I saw fairly early on, I felt this was going to be a big success uh, within that community. I didn't think grander than that, but you know, but I wanted to first build from the base and then go from there. So foundationally, you had what the product would be, uh-huh. and there are so many other details. So what was the journey like to actually brainstorming this thing and then actually opening the doors to the first store? Like, how long did that take? And let's let's talk about some of the, you know, the experiments, the decisions, the mistakes, the 
triumphs. It's like there's so much to starting a restaurant for the first time. Oh. Any kind, fast, casual, full serve, doesn't matter. It's like there's a thousand details to creating this thing. How did you approach the process and what happened before you opened the doors? And I, I would say that my mythology was the best either, quite frankly, right? I, I would say, you know, some of it was ignorance and arrogance. So I actually opened up, I moved to Boulder in basically June and I had the store open in August. Unbelievable. That's wicked fast. Right. So you so, found a location and you had the concept and you hired people to build it out and then you hired people and you put a marketing plan together and you financed it. And maybe you were self-financed. Maybe you had conventional so I, financing. I don't know. Tell us. I self-financed everything. Okay. So to this day, yep. everything is self-financed. We have no debt, which is a very unusual in it the is. circumstance yeah. that we're in. Yeah, for um, sure. And we're profitable too, even on the franchising, everything. So for size and scope, it afforded me some freedom um, on on a few things and allow it to grow in a place that I feel is appropriate also. We weren't under the gun or private equities gun yeah. uh, to get something that may not be 100%. We tried to do it in 100%. In terms of building the business, again, I'm coming from you know, yesterday's late, right? So in in the business that I was in, it's all about results right away and very aggressive, right? So I was born into that for doing it for a long time. So getting us going in an aggressive manner quickly was something I was used to doing, even though it was in a different industry. And sometimes that's not a positive either, right? So everyone, oh, it's good. But it's not. Sometimes you have to think things out a little more thoroughly. You got to make sure that you, this plan uh, was in place. And I was all in also, right? So uh, I bought a house. I had two kids. I had no income and I was starting a business. <laughs> it's not a great place to start, but it's a place to start, right? So I started the business right away trying to do bowls in education. And I always remember I was working these stores I would be so tired at night, you know, and I was mopping the floors, I was doing everything that I wouldn't even know where I parked the car. I would kind of forget where the car was parked, like trying to figure out where I parked because I was so exhausted, you know, doing everything. And uh, and then, you know, hired some key people to manage it, to allow me to have a little more freedom to help menu building. This is all internal to the organization and, and really getting people's feedback. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be there in the beginning. I thought it was so important to be there in the store. I actually like it still just because you're meeting the customer right on and you're talking to the customer and they give you a lot of clues that are not so obvious sometimes. And they may say to your face, oh, I love it but are they reordering it <laughs> or there's things or, Hey, I like it, but maybe if you could do this and those little subtle things sometimes can make you a superstore and have a product that is good and great or a product that's poor. That's not on the menu anymore. So a lot of the feedback from the consumer, I, I don't take that lightly. I, I think it's incredibly important. Let's talk about the product itself. Did you mm -hmm. come up with, say, the formulations, the recipes, the ideas of what the, okay, so, well, first of all, I don't, I don't want to speak for you. Let's talk about what the product is. What goes into a bowl? You've got multiple sure. choices. I know you've got fruit and you've got toppings and you've got proteins and you've got supplements and you've got all kinds of choices. So 
if you could first tell us what some of those are, and then I'd really like to know, our audience would probably like to know is, did you come up with these from the beginning and what is still on the menu today that you first started with because it was a hit right off the bat? Like what's really worked? Sure. First of all, I'll describe what the product is. So we, and we're very different than a lot of competitors in this, in this area now um, that are coming in. We're nothing scoopable or anything like that. We we take fruit and vegetables, if depending on what the product is, or mm-hmm. is, as it added, yeah, with some liquid base, right? It could be oat milk, coconut milk, 100% pure juices, milk milk from a cow. You know, it could be a million different things um, and fruit. And we'll take that and blend it and vegetables. And then... For a bowl, we'll take organic hemp granola, put it on top with fruit, um, or it could be other items with honey or agave, and it's 16 ounces and a topping. So it's a meal. Like our competitor in this space is Subway or is, you know, whatever it may be. Like we're a meal. Our biggest time of day is lunch, right? So we're a meal alternative that can handle almost any dietary need. So I can make anything vegan, gluten-free, dairy-free, whatever your heart desires. We have a product that we can serve to our consumer. And that was important to me because a lot of people had allergies and we don't upcharge for allergies. So if you want to eat gluten-free granola, God bless. Like you want whatever, we have a product for you and you're not getting upcharged for that particular product which again, no one really does. And since we don't use like a scoopable base, we can adjust to people's needs. And it's not a sherbet. So we're low calorie, low you know, sugar content for fruit. And um, we're a very healthy orientation without being preachy. So you want dark chocolate chips on top? Enjoy. You want whatever? We grind our own peanut butter in house. So it has a freshness without it's unsalted peanuts. We grind down and we do it right in front of you. It comes out warm and we put it on the bowl or mix it in. So it's a little more authenticity to a product like this. Um, and then again, talking, answering your second question is that it's been a cumulative process, right? So I had really great employees. I always um, partners in many ways. I listen to what they had to say. So, yes, I came up with a lot of the bowls initially, but then it was really a cumulative process. Hey, why don't you try this bowl and do this? Um, So our menu with bowls is pretty extensive. um, And then a lot is off menus that we can bring in as LTOs or constantly innovating um, and Listen, you either adapt or die in this business. So you always want to be the top gun that everyone's copying. And and certainly we've been for a long time, a place that people would come to to try and copy what we're doing. But you can't fake the flavor, right? You can't do a scoopable acai and say it tastes like real acai. So we're very, very happy about that. And the choices seem endless. So I'm, I'm guessing that you have certain specialty house you know, bowls, but then it's kind of a create your own thing too, because you will customize a bowl for someone, right? I want this and I want this and I want this. And you get a choice of say five ingredients or tell us about that. Well, I mean, we have our bowls um, that we know that are great. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and, and to the guy who asks a little bit again is 
for me, it wasn't about acai or anything like that. It was yep. diversity of flavor. So it was really important to have a very, very different tasting bowls. So we have peanut butter and jelly. We have green tea. We have tropical. We have yes. acai like everyone. But yeah. it was really having an extreme diversity of flavor that anyone can enjoy enjoy a bowl and then playing around with spices we had a spicy bowl which was like a, a lemon and cayenne kind of mango flavor which was really is tasty and lto's you know limited time offer so like pumpkin so having a big diverse flavor set within a very narrow band of bowls and smoothies. So we are not a deli. We do bowls and smoothies better than anyone. Yeah. And we have other esoteric items, but we're not doing panini salads and all these other stuff or not. That's not our focus. Um, and I try to emulate Howard Schultz in the beginning also, who yeah. I admire for Starbucks because yes. it was very similar. Uh, in many ways, um, I can only hope to be anywhere close to that. I don't mean it like that, but it's a good it's good reading his books. It's a really interesting uh, path. And I try to, to do my best to emulate that business model because I thought it was a good one. Oh, absolutely. No one could dispute that for sure. And you're well on your way. And we're going to talk about the growth plans that you have and what you've already achieved. I'm really interested in, uh, before you started your franchise model, did you open multiple stores? Are they all in the Boulder area? I know you've got many locations right now, but before you actually became a franchise, did you have com several company-owned stores? So no, what, you know, we had a company-owned store in Denver where I actually... Uh, and it was an incredible learning experience. I started a wholesale company um, and we were in 40 states with Whole Foods and others, H-E-B and, wow. and, and Costco, with a frozen form of a bowl. In 2010, I launched it um, and did it to roughly around 2016. Um, so it afforded me an incredible opportunity for franchising. I'll explain why. So what we were doing early on, I was trying to get people in and out of my store faster. And I came up with a way to freeze the bowl and, and do it in a mythology that would make it still not like an ice brick kind of more of a texture, good texture yeah. and, gotcha. and packaging that could really withhold it. Once I figured that out, I um, went to Whole Foods. They really loved the product. And then was figuring out a co-packer. So I really focused on wholesale opposed to retail stores. Um, and unfortunately, and this is a learning lesson. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, the good part about this, I was in 40 states. So I had to figure out distribution appropriately for those states. That's a lot of infrastructure and what you're talking about huge, right now. Huge, huge infrastructure. And it's right up my alley because it's. I like a lot of different things. I'm oh, yeah. very focused on That's a awesome. lot of di diverse stuff. So good and bad sometimes, but I, I like to get my hands in a lot of different things and, and learn those business models. What happened to us is in roughly 2016, my co-packer who's producing this stuff now goes out of business overnight. Guy gets arrested. God knows oh, why closes yeah. down. Yeah. And I have all these orders and I'm stuck. Like we can't produce it. We can't have the volume to give this. So ultimately Amazon takes over Whole Foods. We can't produce at the rate we need to. And I'm focused now on franchising. So we kind of put that aside. I was, you know, in a situation that, all right, we're going to just sh not shut it down, but kind of just put it in, in neutral for a bit. 
And then um, I'm going to really focus on the growth of franchising. Along the same times, we opened up a store in Denver, a corporate store, just to verify that this would work really well in different in a different area, a different demographic per se. Sure. Proof of concept. And, yeah. Right. And then um, and then we started really digging into franchising and building a franchise model. All right. So let's talk about that because that is a tremendous undertaking unto itself. And yeah. I, I say that not that I've ever tried to start a franchise, but I know that as a restaurant owner operator in the audience that's listening to this, there are lots of people that are in this business now that are thinking about future growth. Okay. Do we want to open up two, three, 10, a hundred locations? And obviously when you get to that level, you need to start thinking about franchising. But it can be a very daunting sort of an undertaking. And you have to begin with at least one store that is completely dialed, systemized. Everything runs like it, you know, it's supposed to. And you need to be able to train that, duplicate that, you know, no matter how many stores you grow to, and then train people to assimilate that model and to keep, you know, all those systems humming and the consistency of experience. But before you even go down that road, obviously you've got a store and it might be dialed and then you need tremendous amount of legal work because every single aspect of your franchise is probably different than someone else's. Yes, there might be a template there, but the nuances of each individual concept is so different. And to make sure that those guidelines are followed, so there's a financial expense, there's time, there's effort, there's direction, there's legal firepower. And then suddenly, okay, now I've got a franchise. Now I got to market that franchise and convince other people that I've got a winning concept and that they too can be successful in that concept. I don't want to speak for you, but there's so much to this topic. So tell us about how you hit the road running like you do with everything else and zero to 150 miles an hour to get a franchise off the ground. Take, take us on that journey. It It is an extremely difficult journey. I will tell you more than I ever even anticipated with the legal aspects, the different states having different rules um annually updating your franchise agreement and then even you know for us training is key right this product you know it's customer service it's understanding you know like you said the operations being consistent in store design look and feel um and making sure that people are going to operate a business as you would which is probably one of the hardest right even if they interview well are they going to operate the business and care about their own business as much as you cared about yours or or at least functional, right? Or they're the right partners because you can be a franchise. We're the franchisor um, and you can have franchisees, right? But realistically, it's a marriage. I, I, you know, I can't underestimate that, you know. So there are partners in your business and success and failure. So you got to make sure that you pick good partners and that you're a good partners to them. It's a two-way street. Um, and that's really important to the success and failure above and beyond anything else, you know, legal aspects and other things, operational aspects, you got to find good partners. Um, and it's pretty hard. It's, you know, there, like I said, marriage, and, and it, it's a, it's quite an accomplishment, uh, to, to make sure that you find the right partners. Well, different personalities are involved here and yeah. people may talk a good game and look good on paper. And then all of a sudden you don't know what you got until you got it. And then therein lies the marriage equation, right? And are they going to follow things the way we expect and how the franchise agreement outlines that they're supposed to approach that business? 
I love to go back to that movie, The Founder, about Ray Kroc and McDonald's, right. because it's a really interesting part of that movie where one of his original franchisees is like bringing chicken in, right? And yeah. doesn't tell Ray anything. And Ray shows up and there's trash in the parking lot and they're selling chicken. And it's like, that brings home exactly the difference between the model versus, oh, I think I get a better idea on how to run this. So I'm going to just, I think I know what my customers want. Forget what the franchise says. So therein lies the give and take because a franchise agreement is very black and white about what you can and cannot do. But there is a certain leeway in some cases to take into consideration different communities and different wants and needs and how much leeway or leverage can a franchisee in the Rush Bulls fold do? Do they come to you first and say, I got an idea for a new bull? Can I run with it? Can I taste you on it? Or And that's just one example. There's probably 10 different examples. But again, different franchise companies have a, a different amount of flexibility in what they allow the franchisees to do. Tell us about your model and, and how that plays in. Well, uh, you know, a couple of things. We're very focused on bowls and smoothies. So we're a thousand, generally try to be a thousand square feet or less mm. in out. QS or high volume in app, right? So a lot of like COVID was beneficial in many ways, even though it was horrific for humankind. Yeah. But we were a health orientation. We didn't have huge overhead. People can come and go. And it really it was a po- net net a positive for us, even though unfortunately it was horrific for a lot of people and a lot of businesses. Um and uh and just talking about that is people's intention if they're you know i think sometimes there's confusion why you're buying a a franchise model you're buying a franchise model because it works right and even me i would never start my own business again i would buy a franchise honestly Um, because they have the infrastructure they have the model that works and if you follow the script you should be doing well where it's challenging is some people may Say, hey, um, I think if I bring in grandma's cookies, I can sell a ton of those when it goes against kind of the whole business model of health food for in in this. Yes, correct. And everyone thinks not everyone, but a lot of people think that, oh, adding products will increase sales when honestly. And you you notice businesses are all doing this now. They're making the menu small. Be very focused. Smaller square footage, smaller menus. And there's a lot of reasons for smaller menus, but the main one is be as good as you can be and be as focused as you can be. And that's how our business model was set up initially uh, and has always been. So I think the trick with franchisees is getting back to your question is, you know, kind of explain to them, you know, hey, we have a whole system that, you know, for new ideas that you will test everything you bring to us. We'll let you know what we feel, feedback on it's easy for them uh, to do this. So there's a dialogue. And for instance, there's a product we have called Rush Bites, which are basically balls of our fresh ground peanut butter, oats, chocolate chips, and we have banana ones. And that was a uh, franchisee that gave us that idea. Um, And we felt it was a great idea and we launched it nationwide. Um, but again, we do this with bowls, smoothies, but we really don't 
like to do it or don't see the increase in sales by doing it on products that don't really match what we're trying to do and Absolutely. telling people and getting people to understand, even though their grandma's tuna fish sandwich is great, it doesn't belong on the menu. And I think that's a challenge at times because people think bigger menu is more sales when generally it distracts and if anything hurts, hurts your sales. Well, you know, there's another concept about that a lot of operators don't think about. Okay, they think a bigger is better menu, but they have no idea about the profitability of each item. And certain lower profit items could be more popular sellers taking sales away from what they could be selling. And if they focus that and tighten the whole thing up, then the bottom line is going to be much healthier, even if they have less items. You know, I mean, these are all business concepts that are, are very important. So I'm glad you touched on that. Let's talk about you've got a winning concept and if people follow the formula, they're going to be successful. But then the, the concept of location comes in play. Do you have people mm -hmm. in place that help select locations now in different areas? And, you know, we're talking about Boulder and, you know, university of Colorado is a perfect market for the stores in Boulder. Are you suggesting or helping them find high traffic locations that are in college towns or, or big hospitals or whatever. I mean, tell us about the locational aspects of, of this business and, and how you find spaces for your franchisees. So I have a strong opinion on this and, and um, you know, uh, I go back and forth on it. Um, and I'll tell you from experience. First and foremost, we're in all sorts of different communities, uh, rural communities, cities, college towns, which college towns are tricky because there's a seasonal aspect yeah, to it. Yeah, they go, right? they go home for different holidays and summer and all this other kind of right. stuff. Right. So yep. college towns are tougher than people realize. And I knew that early on. Uh, communities, especially during COVID, a lot of the communities in, in towns, small communities, the stores did phenomenal. They were the go-to places people home. As we got out of COVID, a lot of the city locations that were struggling because they're in a city, you know, everyone in desert cities started exploding, you know, sales wise too. So, you know, uh, I, I think there's a, it's nice to be in a diverse set of college towns, which we're in a lot of them, rural communities, which we're in a lot of them, and, and cities, which we're in a, a number of them too. So I, I think it's, it's, it's not just about um, that. I will tell you 30% of our, at least 30% of business traditionally, is takeout or delivery. Mm -hmm. It's a big part of your business. Yeah, for sure. So you're doing delivery as well with third-party delivery services? Right. And we yeah. use a company called Olo that consolidates as a publicly traded company. They have a pretty good platform. We're probably one of the smaller companies they work with on there, but um, it's a good platform that, that helps facilitate delivery, et cetera. So I think location is the key. We work with a company called Sabre. They help our franchisees find locations within their community. It's not exclusive, but we generally recommend that they have the data on our stores. I will tell you just because I feel strongly about this. Location is one part of it. How it's run will determine its success and failure more than location everywhere. You can have, and I've seen it, a store that's in a, the best perfect location, but is not operated as well as it should be, they're going to have a tougher time than a B location that's operated well. So as important as location is, how it's operated is, a, to me personally, a heck of a lot more important. 
I would not disagree with that. You mentioned tightening menus, smaller menus, less is more, that sort of thing. Have your um, different stores been affected by supply chain issues? Have availability of products been a problem? Have certain prices been really volatile on really popular items and that's constantly shifting? I mean, what are you seeing there? Well, this is where experience comes into play, right? So, you know, I understand markets really well. So before even COVID got going, I started switching a lot of our packaging to domestic only. Um, so today we only use packaging that's domestically produced or most of it. I don't know off the top of my head where the straws come or wherever, but most of our 99% of our packaging assumed is domestically made. And I made that decision prior to COVID um, for lots of reasons. I also did big agreements with different suppliers ahead of time. So we did not get as impacted with inflation and other items um, as some companies have. In terms of supply, yeah, there was challenges uh, and significant challenges at times, um, but we really try hard to get ahead of, ahead of it and have alternative backups. So I'm very oriented with supply lines. And again, this is where the wholesale business came into play too, because I had to understand that business. I had to understand manufacturing. And I think it gave uh, us a strategic advantage to deal with some of these challenges that everyone's facing. Um, and some of it's how do you control? Like, you know, listen, there's big suppliers out there and they're out of stuff and they don't tell you they're out of stuff. And you have a someone ordering, expecting it to come in and, and they're totally out and they're going to be out for a month. So what are the alternatives? And, you know, for me and how we operate this business and the team here, it's all about solutions. You know, tell me there's a problem. Great. You know, there's problems all around the world. We all see it every day. It's about the solutions and we're very focused on solutions oriented. And that's really, you know, but fortuitously, we escaped without too much harm, I would say, from a lot of uh, pre-planning. Pre mm -hmm. Awesome. Let's talk about profitability, if you mm -hmm. will, because different concepts have different food costs and different, uh, obviously, item bottom line contributions and all that sort of thing. Tell us about the profitability of your concept and how quickly, how many say people or covers you do in a day in a typical store and is it highly profitable on every sale or it's based on volume it's like it's somewhere in the middle like can you speak to that sure and it, it, you know again there's certain stuff i can speak about and certain stuff i can't just that's fine yeah franchise you, laws yeah um, don't, we, don't go down any roads that you're not comfortable right uh, we we focus pretty strictly on uh costs right so the franchisees set their pricing. We'll have ranges for them. But due to blue sky rules, we can't set pricing for them. We do try to adhere to certain percentages pretty very carefully. So food and paper, we really make sure is at 25% for the franchisee. Mm -hmm. And, you know, employment's in the lower, lower 20s, if not lower. So... You know, from there, the franchisee will calculate the appropriate price depending on, you know, whether you're in California or whether you're in Kansas. You know, it's like very dynamically, you know, uh, for instance, in Indiana, employment is low. 
you know, the, the hourly wage is really low in certain cities, even Denver, I think in, we're opening a ton of stores in Denver, I think it's $17 an hour starting as of January. Right. So one of the yeah. benefits of this business model is particularly us is two to three people can maintain that business at a very high volume rate. And you don't really need more than that. So I was going to ask that next. Thanks for mentioning. Oh, sorry. Uh, you know, it's really sticking to it's an efficient business model. Right. Yes. If you have lots of inefficiencies, then you're going to struggle if you can run it appropriately in the efficient way of how we suggest then you should be in good shape and uh, and grow that business. Again, you got to reach the community. You got to get the bulls in their mouth. A lot of these bulls are new to certain communities. Um, and it, you know, you got to be promoting and we help you on a national level, but within your community, are you reaching out to the high school teams? Are you reaching out to, you know, clubs and colleges, whatever it may be. And some of that falls on the franchisee, which we help them with, but they still got to do it. So that is more indicative of success and failure of how they're reaching the community if they're trying to reach the community. So you're providing best practices and proven guidelines, and they're taking the ball and running that and knowing this has been proven to work in a, in a wide variety of our stores. So we recommend that you try these marketing techniques, that sort of thing. Let's talk about training now. Um, mm -hmm. Well, no, let's back up. Let's talk about vetting a potential franchisee because we talked about this being a marriage. So what's the process like? Because there are, I would say, a large variety of our audience that are listening in are looking for the next opportunity, perhaps. And maybe this franchise holds appeal to them. So what are you looking for? And then what's the process like? And how do you vet someone that you really believe is going to be the most successful in this business? So what do they need to bring to the table in terms of acumen, in terms of financial um, you know, ability? All those things play in here. Yeah, they all play in. And matter of fact, <laughs> we turn down a lot of people, quite frankly. Um, it's uh, first, and it starts with we don't need food experience, right? So that's unusual unto itself. We need business experience, do a business sense. We can train you on how to make the bowl. Our concept, in particular, you don't need hoods. Uh, you, you're, you know, it's electrical power. The build out is much less extensive than a true restaurant, small square vintage. So. The build out on the type of business like this and teaching them the food industry, that's the easy part. Um, when we're looking at people, first of all, do they have business acumen? Have they run a business? Have they understand business? Um, are they going to be, at least in the beginning, part of that business in the store checking in? You, you don't have to be there all the time, but we don't really want people that are 100% absentee, right? We want people that are going to understand their community understand the business and and really look at it as a team effort and that's what we're looking for people that are team oriented um, can take direction and can give a lot of good input um, or not like lone wolves like i'm going to do this but i'm going to do this my way because that's not a franchise model we, we know what works and we understand it um, so what we're looking for is is Leaders that are, have a team approach and um, have business acumen and certainly financially uh, can handle, uh, uh, you know, if it's a tough time there for a little bit, you know, uh, and and, you know, the last thing I ever want to do is put someone in financial harm's way. But you just don't know what tomorrow brings. Right. Like COVID. Um, so, you know, we're looking for these people that 
are team players that have strong ideology in business and that can help their communities uh, and a community focus. Um, certainly you're providing health food into your community that they're not bogged down with the minutia or with trying to create the new new because that's not really, you know, uh, what we're looking for, quite frankly. And we interview these people. We have full presentations. We interview, we ask questions. They ask questions of us and we try and figure out what makes them tick and, you know, how we can, you know, work together. And sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it isn't. And, you know, we've done, I think, a good job, uh, but we've made mistakes and, you know, certainly goes both ways probably. So, you know, we focus on the positives and focus on what works and turn down people that you don't think are going to really apply the guidelines or, you know, going to operate a business that we feel would really fit our, our business model. Is it fairly immediately obvious or does it take sort of a, you know, series of interviews before it becomes clear that someone either is a really solid fit, someone's in the middle or someone just, this will never work. I mean, <laughs> every situation is different. I'm sure. The extremes are easy to figure out, obviously. Um, but it's not obvious because they say the right things. They could have a great pedigree, um, business wise, right? but sometimes it, it's just, you know, for whatever reason may not work. Um, but, you know, you do your best to figure this out. And I don't, this is not unique to Rush. This is any franchise system. I think they right. would all say the same or similar things to, to I. If, if you find someone that has figured this all out perfectly, let me know. <laughs> uh, it's still a science to me. Uh, it's like yeah. hiring anybody also um, within your organization. They interview really, really well. Or maybe they don't have the greatest interview and they're an incredible employee. I will tell you one thing that's very unique. I'm very proud about Rush, Please. Um, which is very different. And, and I hope to continue this as long as I can. Almost all my employees at corporate have managed a store for an extensive period of time. So we hire really with it. So our uh, senior vice president of marketing was my first manager 18 years ago at my store, right? All the guy who heads operation, Eric Gilson, he's managed stores for a long time at Rush, knows the business inside and out. Um, person that uh, works for him also um, has managed a different store, a Rush store in a different state for a long period of time. Uh, the guy that does sales operated and ran our store and managed the store for a long, long time. And it goes on and on and on. And it was really important to me that, you know, that when a franchisee a partner calls in, that they're talking to someone that understands the business. They're not talking to someone who's, oh, all I do is marketing. Yeah. You know, like they understand the business and the challenges and giving solutions. And also from my background, they know, I don't care what time of day, answer the phone. So they're always communicating with our partners, answer the phone, because you know how life happens. Something happens. It's Saturday, nine o'clock at night. And for whatever reason, something happens. And everyone truly cares. They're part of the, the team here. Um, they understand the culture. And all they want to do is you know, do the best they can for the company and for our partners. That's wonderful. 
Great answer. You know, what comes to mind now is you, you speak on so many levels about this business and you clearly have the big picture at 30,000 feet, but I'm also getting the sense that there are certain aspects of this business that are really near and dear to your heart that are still in the trenches. You know, you enjoy the vibe of the stores. Are you getting involved personally in selecting new franchisees or is there, you obviously have a management team below you that does the majority of this, but what aspects of things are you still involved in that may not be just the big picture stuff just because you enjoy it or it's it's just so close to what you did when you first started the store? You know what I mean? Sure. You know, we're a small team, so everyone's involved pretty deeply on lots of levels. Certainly selection um, of franchisees, we're all involved in very deeply. So um, we'll vote on it as a team, making sure that person um, makes, but yeah, interviewing, telling the story, we're all very, very involved in, uh, every one of us. Um, I still have the original store, which is open for 18 years on the Hill and Boulder. And I'm in there, you know, every once in a while, I'll be bringing people up. I'll stop by how are things going. I like that aspect. I like seeing right, people right. talking to the consumers. Mm-hmm. I don't do it often, but I like that aspect of trying, observing what they're getting and why. Um, and trying to make it fun. Again, it's really important that it have a really good, fun environment in in our locations, right? So not only is it great tasting, that it's an environment that people want to come back to. And for me, uh, uh, another funny story that was unusual, uh, if okay with you, but- Yeah, no, absolutely. My mind works differently. So I am always out there. Oh, I'll try this place. I'll try this place. I'll try this place. And um, and it was odd to me. And looking back at it, I'm the odd one. But people want to come to that same place at that same exact time and get the same thing. And I was always astounded by that fact. And I always like, it's us up to us to screw up that relationship. Like, those are the people that pay the bills, keep the lights on, and are your loyal customers. You better treat them with, as everyone, but especially those people with love and thoughtfulness and everything else. Um, Because the routine was so important to these people. And I was never, in my mind, I was never a routine guy. You know, like, uh, you know, I had my routines, but when they came to food, I was all about experimentation or different places or trying something different. So it was always really interesting. And that team here is all about, you know, customer service and keeping those people happy, which you have control over to a certain degree. But if you have a franchisee or you're as good as your worst employee, basically. So you have to make sure they're trained and everyone is operating in a positive manner. You're touching on a key idea here about affinity and the lifetime value of a customer. Because if you can, you know, impart that philosophy on every franchisee that they really need to get to know all of their customers on a first name basis and get people to come back again and again, and then start to recognize what people really like to eat and then ask them, are you, would you like your usual? Is there something else you'd like to try? But there's so much value in that. And it really brings to mind, my flagship restaurant had a mug club and it always astounds me to this day. I no longer own this place, but the bartenders got to know hundreds and hundreds of people on a first name basis. That became our core. 
group of audience that became brand ambassadors for the business. But they literally, the minute the person walked through the door, they knew exactly what their mug number was, what they were drinking in that mug. And in most cases, that beer would be poured before the person got within 30 feet of the bar. And it's and if there was a crowd, it would be passed through the crowd to that person. And it was it was such a huge marketing brand building, you know, thing to do. And that's a very simple concept that you obviously take advantage of at Rush Bulls also, because you're mentioning that people really are creatures of habit and they really like what they like at the same time of day. And they're going to order the same thing. And although you'd like them to try other parts of the menu, it's like what they want, the customer's king, and we're going to have exactly what you want ready for you when you come in the door. And that's just gold, right? That's marketing gold. Yeah. And it, it you know, it, it customers, it's a relationship business. Um, the interesting aspect of that is um, in a neighborhood, in a city environment, it's a, in colleges, it's a little different because you're losing 25% of your customers, theoretically, because yes. they're graduating yes. and moving on, mm -hmm. which was interesting because that yeah. really helped us in many ways. First of all, the younger or the older students would tell the younger students. So that helped you not just lose 25% immediately. You're growing the business while you're losing the business at the same right. time. So you're sort of, yeah, you're replacing what's being lost. And and those people are your best marketers in many cases. That's that's great. Uh, yep. And then a lot of them, especially at CU early on, were moving to a lot of other states. So they are like, oh, why can't you be here? We wish you were here. And it helped us as we started franchising right. to have some sort of small national presence uh, just mm -hmm. from people moving out for doing this for 18 years, you know what I mean? So seeding the market. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. What a powerful formula that is. Let's talk about leverage and the mm -hmm. extent that you're leveraging suppliers to take advantage of economies of scale and all that sort of thing, especially now with rising prices, every little bit helps, of course. So you've got relationships with certain suppliers that are national and mm -hmm. yeah, let's talk and, about and the if you don't mind. And the manufacturers. So a lot of the times you work out a deal with a supplier who agree on their markup basically on it. And then yeah. um, we go directly to the manufacturer and try to negotiate a price from directly. And then that in-between person, that supplier per se, they mark up and they take up what they take. And then eventually it gets to the uh, uh, franchisee uh, partner and in the corporate stores. What we do different though is most of these companies, um, you have to buy the product from the franchisor, um, or you're buying the product and the franchisor gets the rebate. And I will tell you, some companies make more money on the rebates than they do on the um, on the royalties. So what we do in writing is and it's in the franchise agreement is any rebate or any money back from the manufacturer goes directly to the franchisee so we do not use it as a revenue stream and that's unusual within the industry and some of the reasons for that is private equity is not involved at this juncture right so you know, for me, it's not just about growth. It's about success, right? It's of the franchisee, of our partners, and of the whole organization. If you have crappy partners, then the whole organization be uh, suffering. So it's not to take a penny and, you know, really take advantage of the franchisees with regard to cost of goods or, or regard to equipment. All that stuff 
you know, they if they find a cheaper price, God bless, let's all use it. Or if um, we don't find it as a revenue stream for us, and we do that in writing, which is really unusual within the franchise industry. I would say we're probably the 5% that don't do that. Advantage for the franchisee, and it makes your company more that much more attractive. So right. I totally get that. Fantastic. Now, you mentioned the word fun. It's clearly, I can see the vibe of this door behind you, and it's obviously very attractive to young people to work in the place. And you also said that, it, you know, three people can operate a store. So it's not labor intensive, which is a definite advantage, especially during these crazy times. Is it, has there been any challenge getting great staff across the, you know, in the different locations? Well, you know, generally it's two people work in a store. If you're super busy, it'll be three. So, um, You know, uh, labor's challenging. You know, wherever you are in the country, sometimes it's more challenging than others. I would say we're at a competitive advantage because you're a bartender serving healthy food. So generally our employees, um, you know, get money and they also get tips, which they get a lot of, um, and they're front of the house. Mm -hmm. So there's no back of the house. Um, So, you know, that, that quintessential barista or that you know, bartender-esque uh, motif is something that um, people want. But certainly to say there's no challenge with employees, is, there's certainly challenges. And depending on where you're in the country, there's more or less. I do think that's easing up and has been easing up since the, I guess I would say the spring and part of the summer were the toughest to, for a lot of our partners um, to get good in people consistently. Um, I do think longer term, that'll be a lot easier. Uh, and certainly, I think also inflation is going to ease up quite a bit, um, uh, economically speaking, with some of the food inflation or even it's a supply demand thing, right? S- somewhat. So For I think sure. there'll be more, more and more supply um, and it, that will you know, basically ease demand. So some of the inflation woes that we're all experiencing will mitigate a little bit. And, and we're seeing it mitigate currently, but you may not see that in all aspects of, of business and certainly not in interest rates. Yeah, that was another topic I wanted to cover because obviously quick serve is in a, uh, is in a better position perhaps than full serve, especially with the uncertain economy and inflation now and impending recession, if you believe that that will happen and people are going to ultimately cut back on dining in experiences and, and, you know, you're in a better position clearly, but are you strategizing what's coming ahead? And is this part of discussions that you have with operators about what, what's ahead in 2023, or do you think you're in a really good position and that it should just continue? Yeah, no, we're definitely right. strategizing. Um, we're focused on that. Um, I, you know, we even see it to a certain extent uh, in our, you know, people a little more concerned. Um, uh, not about price per se, which is interesting, um, but maybe not coming in as much as they normally would, or the parents, if it's a college kid, a little more. Hey, what are you doing here? Um, and that's where catering comes into play reaching yes. up doing a better job within our communities of reaching out and that's really getting our partners focused on that which we do very we try and do a pretty aggressive manner hey what are you doing are you trying to do this don't get focused and just being in the store you know you want to be promoting the brand promoting what you have here into your local community 
And we're certainly not there to go to door to door to go to gyms like Orange Theory that we uh, we do a lot of uh, cross uh, promotion. Uh, they do a good job there. But among other even gyms, um, reaching out to them, reaching out, hey, you know, instead of that unhealthy sandwich, have a rush bowl, you feel better and it's low calorie and you get in shape and it tastes awesome. So really being promoting it within your local community is something we really are harping on and harping on just to make sure people are out there because that that will, you know, get you through whatever the challenges that may be uh, coming. Well, this is a business of passion and pride. And clearly, you know, the pandemic devastated our industry and those restaurants. I mean, a couple hundred thousand literally disappeared off the map. But the restaurateurs and the operators and the managers that are still operating today, even though obviously they've gone through some of the most challenging times that we're ever going to face as operators. What advice do you have for them? if they've made it so far, but now you really just got to dig deep and get resourceful and creative and, and just try to not just succeed or, or survive, but to really get your business to the next level. And you clearly approach things from a business standpoint, but what, what would you say to those people about this business in general and about, you know, what your best advice would be? Well, uh, you know, I wish I could say this is brilliance, but most of it was persistence, right? So Thank you. Trying to run an efficient business, doing the best you can to reach the community. I think restaurants in general, whether it's quick serve or anything else, has been decimated by the industry and still is no let up yet. If you look historically speaking, even if we're in a recession, that's when franchising kind of explodes. And generally, those stores that you know get through it excel. Um, and I'd rather be in the bottom of the you know of the hill of you know success then on the top or almost to the top and i i think if you got through what we've experienced then you're on the bottom going up and i think it's a great ride to go up and uh you know it takes a lot of effort but once you have it down man it's it's quite a ride to the top and i i think it's it, it's it's really just knocking on doors persistence don't get too caught up in all the negativity, whether it's, you know, we stay out of politics, but all we see is negativity from one side or the other, right? That's so, true. Absolutely. Uh, right. Yep. You know, just keep your head focused on growing your business. Don't get caught into the minutia of, you know, Susie didn't show today, you know, like, all right, what am I going to do to grow the business? And, and I think if you get focused on that without being highly levered, you know, I think you're in good shape to succeed. Thanks so much for sharing. For those of our audience that think they have what it takes based on the criteria that we outlined for this particular franchise model, Andrew, how do people find uh, this opportunity? Sure. If you go to rushbulls.com, that's R-U-S-H-B-O-W-L-S.com or rushbulls, um, there's all information on the website. You can uh, certainly reach out to us. And it's certainly I'm always available. The whole team is available. Uh, it's really a team here. So uh, we look forward to hearing anyone who from anyone who's interested in owning a Rush Bulls or has questions about the concept. Thanks so much for sharing. Andrew, you've been a great guest on the podcast. You got a really dynamic concept. We wish you all the success in the future as your franchise continues to grow. So thanks for being with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a great pleasure. Okay, audience, that was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. We so appreciate you tuning in. We can't wait to see you next time, so stay tuned. Thanks again, Andrew, for being a great guest and for sharing Rush Bowls with us. 
We talked a lot about the necessary systems in this episode to truly run a, an effective enterprise, to deliver amazing guest service, to run a tight ship. You need systems in place. And if you don't already have those, why not check out our Restaurant Rockstars Academy? We have a simple monthly membership um, at a very affordable price, but it literally allows you to train your entire team. So it's great for the owner. It's great for the general manager. It's great for your sales and service staff. It literally covers every aspect of your organization. So check it out. It covers critical financial controls and profit maximization. It covers marketing firepower that's trackable, that drives new and repeat business. It's all about staff training to serve and sell and all the uh, efficiencies you can find across your organization. It's all at the Restaurant Rockstars Academy at restaurantrockstars.com. Can't wait to see you in the next episode. So please stay tuned. People go to restaurants for lots of reasons, for fun, celebration, for family, for lifestyle. What the customer doesn't know is the thousands of details it takes to run a great restaurant. This is a high-risk, high-fail business. It's hard to find great staff. Costs are rising and profits are disappearing. It's a treacherous road and smart operators need a professional guide. I'm Roger. I've started many highly successful, high-profit restaurants that I've now sold for millions of dollars. I'm passionate about helping other owners and managers not just succeed, but knock it out of the park. I created a game-changing system, and it's filled with everything I've learned in over 20 years running super profitable, super fun restaurants. Everything from creating high-profit menu items and cost controls, to staff training where your teams serve and sell, to marketing hooks, money-maximizing tips, and efficiencies across your operation. What does this mean to you? More money to invest in your restaurant to hire a management team, time freedom, and peace of mind. You don't just want to run a restaurant. You want to dominate your competition and create a lasting legacy. Join the Academy, and I'll show you how it's done. Thanks for listening to, to the, the Restaurant, Restaurant Rockstars, Rockstars Podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. See you next time.